0: Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Matthew 28, verse 11 and keep your finger there. We're gonna pray and then we'll begin this morning sermon. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee, Your word is a lamb to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servants to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning's message is the resurrection, the message, the meaning, and the mandate, part one. Part two, last week was part one. And in part one, we clarified what the message was. The message is, he is risen. The meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that scripture is true. The meaning is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The meaning is that Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. And the resultant mandate is that we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior that was Matthew 28 verses 1 to 10 a quick summary of what happens there the two Marys Mary Magdalene and the wife of Cleopas come to Christ's tomb on resurrection morning on Sunday morning the tomb is empty and the angel tells the two women he is not here for he has risen he then sends them to Galilee And on the way, these two women meet Jesus. They see him, they cleave to him, and they worship him. And Jesus tells the two Marys, go and find my brethren, go and find my disciples, and tell them to meet me in Galilee. Then the narrative picks up. Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. In other words, what this text tells us is that the two Roman soldiers who were guarding Jesus' tomb when they saw what happened, They ran and went to the Jewish leaders of the day. These guards were scared because they were soldiers commissioned to guard Christ's tomb. And had it been found out that something happened to Jesus' body, these soldiers would have paid with their lives. So what do they do? They run and tell the Jewish leaders of the day and they run and tell them because they knew the Jewish leaders of the day didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They knew they as well would have had an interest in covering the truth up. And so men with an evil scheme in their minds mix up and get in bed with other men with evil schemes in their mind and as a result of that unholy union is birthed a lie. Results disinformation of what in fact did not actually happen. But here's the problem. The lie that was manufactured doesn't even make any sense. The lie that was fabricated was that grave robbers came to Jesus' grave and took his body. But here's the thing, church. Grave robbers don't steal bodies. They steal stuff grave robbers don't go into a tomb so they can bring a corpse home they want money they want clothing they want jewels no one steals dead bodies and on top of that the lie said Jesus' disciples took his body here's another problem all his disciples were jews and jews don't like dead bodies because it makes you ritually unclean. That's why the bodies went in the tomb and were left there for months so nature could decay the bodies over time. This lie doesn't make any sense. But here's the other thing. This lie was a badly constructed lie. This lie proves the tomb was empty. Even this lie doesn't deny the fact that Jesus's tomb was empty. What this slide does do is it tries to provide an alternative explanation for why Jesus's body was missing. Look, if someone took Jesus's body, either his enemies took it or his allies took it. If his enemies took his body, you know what they would do? They would say, hey everybody, here's the dead guy, didn't resurrect, Christianity over. If his allies took his body, people clearly were not discerning the signs of the times because all of Christ's disciples ran away from him. They weren't busy running to his tomb trying to secure his body because they lost hope. They were faithless and like Peter, they denied Jesus and didn't have any hope left. So what's the message? What is God trying to tell us? The message is, there have always been fake explanations. There have always been fake gospels that have accompanied God's truth. And the reality is, people will always explain away with their minds what they don't want to believe in their heart. We live in a day and age where people who are supposedly smart say things like, the entire universe came into being from nothing, for no reason, for no purpose, which doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense because sin doesn't make any sense. This lie, this fake news story that Jesus Christ did not resurrect doesn't make any sense. Because sin never does. And the message is, the gospel writers like Matthew were not afraid of the truth, which is how, which is why they could include made-up lies in their narrative, which was in fact, which is in fact, the truth. Verses 16 to 20. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 16 says that the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to to the mountain which Jesus had designated. In verses 1 to 10, Mary and the other Mary heard the angel, listened to the angel's instructions, and obeyed. They went. The 11 disciples heard the command, heard the instruction to go to Galilee, and they went. In other words, the 11 disciples were exactly where they were told to be, and they made themselves available in the spot that God has designated. What's the message? The message is, a great ability is availability. A great ability is availability. Listen, if the apostle Paul was called to be an apostle and was sent and was told to go all across God greens earth God's green earth but he wasn't available and he was hanging out in his basement God couldn't use him if God calls someone to teach but that teacher is not available that teacher is not in front of a classroom teaching students then God cannot use that person. If God gives someone with wisdom, with intellect, with understanding, but the only individuals that really intellectual person converses with are old and lifeless books, now that wisdom all goes to waste. If you don't make yourself available, if you don't make yourself useful, that means you are now useful. God's greatest blessings are not available to those who are not available, those who are not prepared to receive them. We are all earthen vessels. We have particular capacities. This is how God works. We now prepare, we make ourselves available, we clean out and we fashion our earthen vessels to make them wider, to make them deeper, and we present ourselves available and ready and say, Lord, please use me. But until we actually present ourselves as available, God cannot fill that vessel up. And here's how God works. When he fills your vessel up, what are you now going to do? Pour out all of that onto all those around you so that God can deepen your well and fill up your earthen vessel again. But if that vessel is not available, it's not usable. Being available means available time, available resources, available attention, available gifts, and available talents. A great ability is availability because God never blesses unavailable protesters. Verse 17, when they, when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I remember in my my younger years, when I was hesitant, when I said all this religion stuff is, is meant to manipulate people, this is one of the verses that rattled my mind. Here's what the Bible is telling us. The Bible says that the 11 disciples, the guys who would lay the foundation of the Christian church, the infallible, the inerrant word of God, the Bible says That of the original disciples, they worship God, but they were doubtful? Question mark? The Bible actually says this, that they were doubtful. And on top of that, not only is the Bible having full disclosure, the only person who could write that they were doubtful, Matthew, is someone who was there who could interview the 11 and ask them, hey, what were you thinking when you saw the resurrected Christ? The message, beloved, is this. Doubt does not disqualify you from following Christ. Listen, these were the original 11 disciples seeing the risen, resurrected Christ with their own eyes. He was speaking to them, but some had their reservations in their mind. And that is okay, Because doubt does not disqualify you from following Christ. What does now apply is what you do with those doubts and the path you take moving forward. You may begin your relationship with God with lots of baggage. You may have a teeny tiny mustard seed bag that says faith. Then you may have lots of other bags that are big. One says Samsonite, one says Tumi, one says past, one says other people. Lots of baggage, and that's okay. But as long as you now take a step forward acting on that mustard seed worth of faith. What now begins happening as that faith, as that truth animates your Christian experience, what now happens is you move away from doubt and you move towards total and absolute certainty. Because remember the context. These were the original 11 who saw Jesus with their own eyes. Meaning the evidence was right in front of them. All the proof you could ever want that Jesus resurrected was staring them in the face. But some were still doubtful. Because, beloved, we're flesh and bones human beings. All the evidence, all the data, all the facts in the world is never going to make a flesh and bones human being certain. What does that is a truth that actually is living, a truth that actually is breathing, a truth that actually is a fleshly nature to it, which animate and can prove itself to be reliable in everyday, flesh and bones, human life. And you know what it proves when the text tells us that the 11 disciples had their doubts? That proves that the 11 disciples were actually thinking. Because all real thinking about anything involves doubt. If I told you right now the sky is pink, and you said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea, that means you're not thinking. That means the neurons in between your ears are not firing. But if I tell you something and you have questions, you begin scrutinizing, you have doubts, that means the brain that God gave you is now firing and is beginning to ask, critical and probing questions and here's the beauty of actually going to god with with uh questions seeking clarity and meaningful answers when you now do that and take your reservations to god do you know what no one's ever going to be able to call you now a simpleton a pushover No one can ever call you an ignorant fool because you've asked the critical probing questions and then obtained clarity and meaningful answers to all of them. If you first question, then you are compelled to investigate, test, and scrutinize. And the result is a faith that is doubt-resistant because you expose your faith to criticism and now developed antibodies. doubt. The Bible talks about real people in real life, and real people have doubts. So having doubts does not disqualify you from following Christ. And what does the real-life example of the disciples tell us? These are men who may have began having doubts, but where did they end up? They ended up as men who had absolute certainty, and these men ended up, most of them, dying for the truth. No one ever dies for a lie, but they were absolutely certain in the, res- in the resurrected, risen Jesus Christ. Verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now let's zoom out for a second. Jesus Christ is a public ministry. He's crucified, He's in the tomb, He raises, He's taken out from the grave. Jesus could have said a million different things to his disciples the first time he saw them. He could have said, I told you so. He could have said, why did you not believe me? He could have said, let's go take out the Romans. But he didn't say any of that. The first thing out of our Lord's mouth to the disciples is a message about himself that relates to his authority and his power. Here in verse number 18, Christ interprets for us what his resurrection actually means. And Christ says, now that I am risen from the dead, I have been given all authority, all exousia, all power. Because the message is, the risen Christ is the one who has all power, not a quarter power, not three quarters power, all power. So I ask you now, if the risen resurrected Christ has all power, why would you trust in anything else? Why put your faith Why put your hope, why put your confidence in anything else? Because every other object of faith must ultimately answer to the one who has all authority and all power, Jesus Christ. All authority means that nothing can ever compete with omnipotence. All authority means that Jesus alone has an unlimited divine right. There is no place in the universe where Jesus is not sovereign. If you got on a spaceship and traveled a billion light years to the end of the galaxy and put a microscope up to an asteroid somewhere out there, that asteroid will tell you Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he has all power and all authority everywhere, all the time. But here's the thing How did Jesus Christ obtain all that power? It was given to him. He says, All authority has been given. Jesus did not start up an illegal revolt, he didn't initiate a coup. He didn't usurp a king and take a throne that was unrightf- that was rightfully someone else's. It was given to him. And the way that Jesus went up is he first went down in a path of humility, in a path of obedience, in a path of servitude, in the path of dying on a cross. As I said before, the only reason why Jesus Christ is risen is because he first went down when he was crushed, pierced, bruised and killed for our iniquities. For as the God the Father says in Psalm 2-6, Jesus Christ is God's King. God is God's King. The Father says, I have installed my King. I have installed the Son, Jesus Christ, upon Zion, for all authority has been given to him. Before Jesus was coronated sovereign king, the people called him a man of sorrows, a man of laments, a man of tears. But in the Bible, the way up is always down. And he went down only now to be exalted on high. And now the same hand that figuratively speaking holds the scepter that symbolizes all authority and all power is the same hand that was pierced, is the same hand that was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus Christ fell to rise so that now the crucified one is the risen Lord. And now therefore, because all power has been given to him, as he says a couple verses earlier, we have no reason to fear because it's okay. We have no reason to fear because all authority rests with Him. And we have every reason to trust Him, to love Him, to obey Him, and to worship Him. Now when I say power, when I say authority, most people register something negative. They think of governments, they think of tyrants, they think of militaries, they think of power as in Goliath, or might, or tanks marching across your hometown. And I would agree that power in the hands of men is dangerous, but power in Christ's hands means truth, light, love, justice, that they are all allies of the crown. It tells us that the truth of God will win and has already won. And it also tells us, church, that the forces of darkness cannot win. The devil cannot win. Darkness cannot win. Deceit cannot win. Malice cannot win. Selfishness cannot win. Because Christ has all authority and all power. And he will use that power to rightly destroy anyone who stand, anyone or anything that stands against him and to promote his allies the message is because christ has all power all power rests in the hands of the best possible person all power rests in the hands of the crucified one this means his power will be rightly used this means our minds have assurance because in the right hands this means our heart is filled with joy because we know the crucified one will not abuse that power. Church, what the book of Revelation tells us, if we zoom out above all else, the book of Revelation tells us that in the end, God triumphs. God is victorious. God is the king. And no matter what may happen, no matter how perilous, no matter how arduous, no matter how the walk of the individual or the walk of the church may look, we know and have peace and assurance knowing that Christ is King. And at the end of all history, we shall one day meet the King who has all power and all authority. This means because Christ has it all, we do not seek any other power. We don't put saving faith in a government to save us. We don't put saving faith in a group identity to save us. We don't put saving faith in a philosophy to save us. If we did, then that actually means we don't believe Jesus Christ has all power and authority. This means that we obey the king because he is the king. It means that we never have a reason to be ashamed of our glorified king. It breaks my heart when I see Christians who feel ashamed or feel inhibited when they're in school, when they're at their work, when they're wherever, and they some way, shape, or form feel ashamed to tell someone else about Jesus Christ. Was Christ ashamed of you when he hung there on a cross, humiliated, sinless, and guiltless, rejected by the world for your sin? He never was, which means now that he has all power and authority, we never have a reason to be ashamed of our risen, glorified Lord. This means that Jesus has all power and authority now You know what that tells us? You and I never have to go out and win the world for Jesus because it's already his. He has all power and authority. You can't add to that because it's already and totally complete. Now, practically speaking, does this give us a philosophy of fatalism? Do we now say, oh, this is great. Jesus has all power and authority. I'll just sit at home and do nothing. No. This is how heaven's logic works. Heaven's logic tells us that because all power is given to Christ, now we go out and do something. Now we go out knowing the one who sends us out has all power and all authority. So what Jesus now does, now that he tells his disciples that he has all exousia, he sends them on a mission that he's in complete and total control over, supplying them with the resources they need to go on that mission. So now the mandate comes. Now that we know Jesus is king, that he has all power and authority, now he gives his disciples what is famously called the Great Commission. And what the Great Commission is, it's a message that has meaning, and that message that has meaning has a resultant mandate. Verse 19, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. R.C. Sproul once wrote, quote, the Great Commission is not the great suggestion, It is not the grand idea. It is not an essay on manifest destiny. It is a mandate from the King of Kings who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth." The Great Commission was communicated to Jesus' disciples. And now by implication, no matter where you are in the world, no matter when you are, When you are a follower and a disciple of Christ, the Great Commission now applies to you. And the first part of the mandate is Jesus Christ says, go. And when Jesus commands everyone, everywhere, all the time to go, this is a command that was given 2,000 years ago and now continues to the very end of time. And those who go, those who are going, like the 11 disciples, are people who know Jesus, who worship him, who listen to his word, and who sit under his teaching. Now the Great Commission says go, doesn't say where, just says go. You may go across the street. You may go across the borough. You may go across the city. You may go across the country. You may also go to the other side of the world. It doesn't matter where you go, as long as you go. And if there are any parents listening to my words, the first place you go is to your own children because it doesn't make any sense for you to go to the other side of the world when you haven't gone to your sons and daughters first. Can't be any good out there if you're not good at home. So you may have to go to your child's room or go to your kitchen table and preach and teach the word to those who share your last name. the text says go therefore this is heaven's logic once again heaven's logic is because Christ has all power go and teach all nations about Christ being sent by Christ in the power of Christ but what are we to go and do go and do what are we to go and socialize no are we to go and build a well no Are we to go on a trip to learn about history? No, we are to go and make disciples. This is the crux of it. This is the main verb and the central command of the Great Commission. The emphasis is not on going, the emphasis is on making disciples. Again, the emphasis is not on going, it's on making disciples. So what is a disciple? It's a rich, rich term. A disciple, is some, a disciple is not someone who simply sits in a class and takes notes. That's a student. A disciple is someone who learns with their minds but also places their, tr- their trust in God with their heart and follows him with their will. It's a totality of engagement of the entire person. So when you're sitting in class, you're a disciple. When you're going to the supermarket, you're a disciple. When you're swimming in the sea, you're a disciple because you're all in all the time. Disciple is not a label, it's not an attainment, it's a character which now animates a lifestyle. And being a disciple is a lifelong calling because no one who truly and earnestly sits under the word of God stops learning. Because a finite human mind can never fully process omniscience. This is what Jesus says in John eight thirty one to 32. If you continue if you continue, as in if your life's calling, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So what's the message? What's God trying to tell us? The message is, being a disciple is about living the truth, not just knowing it, or saying it being a disciple has more to do with what happens in your life between Monday and Saturday than opposed to Sunday morning as a matter of fact what you do for two or three hours on Sunday morning has ultimately little relevance to what goes on for the entire rest of the week the other days are a far better barometer of your walk of discipleship as opposed to Sunday morning. Because a true disciple has total engagement of mind, heart, and will. When God tells his people in Deuteronomy 6, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. In other words, God was commanding his people To be disciples. Now let's think about this. Jesus has all authority and power. He could command his disciples to do anything. And what does he command his disciples to do? To go and teach, to go and preach the word. To go to all nations everywhere not with violence not with swords in their hands but to go into diverse places tribes and tongues and to make disciples of people which tells us what that god that all power and authority resting in god's hands that power will now be used in godly ways it'll be used in just holy, and righteous ways, not warped, carnal, and earthly ones. And Jesus says, go and make disciples. He does not say, go and make church additions. He does not say, just go and make converts. He does not say, go and fill up all the empty seats in the church. He says, go and make disciples. Growing and cultivating a disciple is what happens after conversion. It's what happens after you come to know Jesus, which now spans over decades and decades and decades as you go from a babe in Christ to someone who's mature. Let's make this plain. When I graduated medical school, I was a big shot, right? had an MD behind my name. I was a doctor. Long white coat, people no longer said Elijah, they said Dr. (laughs) Sadafal. But even though I was just converted into the brotherhood of physicians, even though I was just transferred into this community of medical practitioners, I didn't know anything. Most interns don't. I knew how to take a multiple choice test really, really well. I could give you book knowledge but when it came to actually treating a flesh and bones human being who had a real problem, I was clueless. I needed help. So what happened? There were people more senior, wiser, who'd been doing this for a while, who would lead me, who would guide me, who would train me, who would teach me. Now I go from being an intern. To being a resident to one day finally becoming an attending where now i guess what i was now training and leading and guiding brand new interns but even as an attending do i ever stop learning no i don't i'm always Inputting information to my mind, reading new studies to increase my knowledge base and to do what I do more effectively. So when we use that analogy now, making disciples refers to that entire process. When someone now was converted and now knows Christ as our Lord and Savior, they are now led and guided by those who are more mature in the faith so that ultimately one day they will now have the ability to teach, lead, and guide those who are, figuratively speaking, younger in the faith than they are. What the Great Commission, beloved, ultimately points to is the main thing the church is called to do. It's not entertainment, it's not having lovely songs, it's not how nice a church building looks. The main thing the church is supposed to do is to grow and cultivate disciples by edifying the saints so that they will be established and because jesus gives this command to those who were already his disciples this tells us that the mission statement of a disciple is ultimately to replicate themselves now as i mentioned before Being a disciple is a lifelong calling because no one ever stops learning. And this is crucial to understand because real disciples are committed to teaching. Fake disciples are not. Real disciples are committed to being taught. Fake disciples are not. Real disciples say things like, the word of God is unsearchable incomprehensible. I can study this for the next 2,000 years and not even scratch the surface. Fake disciples say things like, I got God figured out. I'm good. I don't need to know any more information. I got this all figured out. I have God in a box. I put the box in my hand. I'm good. Let me be. Go, Go to church. Have fun. Discipleship, beloved, is a lifelong calling, and no one ever stops learning. Jesus then says, go and make disciples of all the nations. We have to realize Jesus' public ministry didn't span the entire world. Jesus' public ministry was only confined to the geographic area that we now call Israel. Jesus did not take the gospel to the entire world because he now commands his church to do that, to go all over to all nations, tribes, and tongues. So you may be asking yourself, how can you, How can I make disciples of all nations? And the answer is you can't. But the church can. Because even when members of the church move on to be with the Lord, different local bodies in diverse places all over the globe can last for hundreds and thousands of years and continue the mandate, continue the mission, to continually go and make disciples. Jesus says, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is not an English word. Baptizing comes from a Greek word that means immersion. That means going all the way under. And I'm going to get back to that in a second, because we are baptizing what? In the name of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Name in the Bible is not a label. It's not a moniker. Name refers to someone's nature or character. That's why when someone meets God, their name changes. Like Abram becomes Abraham. Like Jacob becomes Israel because their nature and their character changes. So when we are baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're not taking a dip. We're not being sprinkled. We're not putting our toes in the water to see if it's hot or cold. We are fully immersed. We are submerged in the now spiritual nature of the Holy Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we serve one God. One God three persons who are co-equally and co-eternally God. It's hard to grasp. One God, three persons. Not three gods. One God, three persons. All co-equally, co-eternally God. And for our human minds, it's difficult to grasp the essence of the Trinity. Because C.S. Lewis once said, trying to grasp how the Trinity works is like living in a two-dimensional world that's flat, where you have only squares and circles, and then God comes as a three-dimensional being, and God tries to explain what 3D looks and feels like. Ultimately, we are unable to neatly compartmentalize the essence of God, and that's okay. Because if a human being ever were to figure out God completely and to put a neat description of Him in a box, then God would cease being God. The critical message is that we serve one God and three persons and all three members of the Godhead are involved in salvation. Jesus says, go, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And what did Jesus command his disciples? To love God and to love our neighbors. Because the God of love commands us to love, because love is the most powerful force in the universe. And how do we know how to love God? That is simple. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because God's commandments tell us what is best, what is good, what is righteous, and therefore what is not good, thus to avoid because if a person really loves jesus they can prove it by who they are how they act and what they do church ultimately it does not matter what a person professes with their mouth it matters who they are and how their life is carried out because the devil can quote scripture and recite christianese better than anyone but what he can't do is keep the commandments of Scripture. This is why Jesus commissions us to teach them to observe all that he commanded us. The final thing Jesus does is he gives us a message of comfort. And he says, And lo, I am with you, I am with you always, even to the end of the age lo is a word that calls our attention to something important and when he says lo i am with you you is not singular you is plural so he's saying lo i am with you all i am with all of you guys jesus is telling us that he exists in community where two or three are gathered together. He is always with his church, even until the end of the age. He's with us always. He's with us all the days. He's with us on Mondays. He's with us on Tuesdays. And thank goodness Christ is with us, for if there ever were a day when he was not with us, then the church would be finished in the blink of an eye. And Jesus promises his church, his disciples, that he will be with us to the end of the age. Church, what this tells us is that Jesus Christ gives us the mandate. He gives us the Great Commission and promises to preserve us until the end because he intends to keep us until the end. It means that he has given us a race to run, but we run that race as if we're trying to cross the finish line. We run that race knowing when we cross that line, who will meet us there, our King, Jesus, the one who sent us on that race in the first place. And we know that when our muscles begin to burn, when we become frustrated, when we become tired, the one who has promised to be with us, with you all in that race, is Christ himself we therefore run a race so that we run until the end knowing that Christ has all authority and power over everything that happens so that's the message what's the meaning we see the meaning of the resurrection here in the final four verses of Matthew's Gospel, verses 16 to 20, where Jesus accomplished and finished our redemption in his crucifixion and resurrection, and now that's applied to his church, to his disciples, to his followers in the Great Commission. The resurrection happened. There was a message that has meaning, and now the application of what God did is given to us in the form of a mandate, the Great Commission. And when Jesus says he has all authority, that means he has all authority right now over everything. Over government, over politics, over the stock market, over media, over television, over the church. I don't know what your ultimate concern is right now in life. Your ultimate concern may be climate change. Your ultimate concern may be the threat of nuclear war. Your ultimate concern may be who wins the 2020 presidential election. But what the Great Commission tells us is the one who is sovereign the one who has authority over all of those things is Jesus Christ. Nothing could therefore be more important than him, because the president, the climate, nation states, whatever is said on news, whatever you read in the newspaper, all of that ultimately Answers to the one who has all authority and power. So what is the mandate? The mandate is that we believe him. The mandate is that we trust him. But more than that, that belief has legs. That belief compels us to action. Look at all the imperative verbs in the latter half of Matthew 28. Come, see, go, tell, make, baptize, teach, observe. The mandate is that faith has legs, and we do all that as faithful and loyal subjects of a king who reigns with love. His love gifted us with salvation so that we now go out with his power, that Christ will reign in the hearts of those who trust in him. Beloved, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, ruled over by a spiritual God, who reigns in the spiritual hearts of a spiritual people. That is how God, the one with all power and authority, builds his kingdom, by going out, by preaching, teaching, and proclaiming the gospel. We know that is the ideal, perfect kingdom, which will have no end, and which will reign forever. So now that we know that Jesus has all authority and power, my question to you is, in your heart of hearts, are you trusting in anything or something else? Because if anyone were to do that, that actually means you're trying to take Jesus's crown away from him. But he is the one who has all authority and all power. And as we now go and follow the mandate of the Great Commission, and live and breathe Christ's truth, we will move from faith to certainty. We will move from hesitation to bold assurance. Because the final point I'll leave you with is this. God always wants the best for his children and God always wants to use us as a means by which his power flows through us. But the only way a person can appropriate that power and live a life that exalts God with everything that they are and exalts Christ with everything that they are, the only way a person can appropriate that is if they truly believe and hold on to Jesus, the only one who has all authority and power. And he has all that because Christ is king. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we realize and understand that salvation was a work wrought by you before the foundation of the world. Heavenly Father, you foresaw and foreknew all those whom would be yours. Lord Jesus, you were crucified, you died, and you rose from the dead to make a precise atonement for all of your children whom the Father foreknew. And now, Holy Spirit, you are the one who applies that wrought salvation in our hearts and minds, and you are the one who equips us with the power to go and fulfill the mandate of the Great Commission. You, O Lord, are one God and three persons, and we yield before you today, asking you to wrought a work in our hearts today that we may behold you, Lord Jesus, as the sovereign one, having all authority and all power, that you may use us as the vessels through which your power flows in order to proclaim and in order to grow your marvelous kingdom which shall reign forever which will have no end. Lord Jesus, we know you have promised to keep us until the end, and we now go and run the race expectantly hoping and wishing to see you at the end, knowing every step of the way. You have guided our steps and led our feet by your marvelous light. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadafal. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.